From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Caesarea Philippi has been an important place for at least 3,000 years, probably because it's such a beautiful place. If one goes today immediately north of the Sea of Galilee on a very modern four-lane highway, it's only 20 miles. But 1,200 years before the coming of Jesus, when Joshua led the people across the river into the Promised Land, the Canaanites already had a shrine there to a pagan heathen god they called Baal. You see, this is the place where the melted snows of Mount Hermon in Syria have gone underground and then bubble up thousands of gallons of clear, beautiful water. It's cold coming up out of the ground. Trout a foot long swim in the waters. Some of the biggest fig trees I've ever seen in my life grow right there on the banks. There's a cave, a grotto there, where the worshippers have come over the years. When the Greeks under Alexander the Great overran this territory, they decided this was no place for a Canaanite god, Baal. This was a great spot for one of the Greek gods. How about Pan? And so they changed the name to Panias. 300 years ago, later, when Herod the Great was king, he was always trying to curry favor with the Romans, so he decided to name this beautiful place for one of the Caesars, Augustus, and he called it Caesarea Augustus. After Herod the Great had died, a new Caesar had come to the throne in Rome. Herod's son, Philip, decided he'd rather have it named for him. He'd keep the name Caesarea and name it Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. Jesus took his disciples up to this beautiful spot and asked, Who do the people think I am? And after various answers were given, he asked, And who do you say that I am? And Peter said, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Bless you, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say your name shall be Petros. I'm going to call you Peter, the rock. Upon this rock I will build my church. Wow, what a wonderful day at Caesarea Philippi. And then suddenly Jesus began to tell them how he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and be raised. Simon said, God forbid, this must never happen. And notice here this word must. <clears throat> he started telling them how he must go to Jerusalem, and Peter says, this must not happen. And so the one who's just been called the rock upon which the church will be built is now called the stumbling rock or stumbling block. It's the Greek word scandalon from which we get the word scandal. 
things have gone from being really good to really bad in just a few verses. Let's take a look. Number one, that whole business about was it not necessary? Was it not necessary that he go to Jerusalem? I was reading Dr. Eugene Boring's commentary on this passage and he said, most of us read this whole chapter in which these two stories are told and we think this is all about who Jesus is but it's really about who God is. I mean, if the whole point for God sending Jesus was to help the world know more about God, then this question, who do you say that I am, really is more about the nature of God. Who is God if God is present in Mary's child, Jesus of Nazareth? I read a story in a recent Guidepost magazine uh, written by a woman down in Texas named Edwina Hex. And she found this story very helpful to her. There were parts of it that troubled me, let me tell you. She said that she grew up in a family where the mother took her and the others to Sunday school and church, but the daddy never went. He fished. Uh, down in Texas, you can fish every Sunday in the year if you want to, weather permits, fine. And she said he wanted to. So every Sunday he fished. It was just understood he's going to leave before daylight. He's not coming in till dark. He's going to fish. Well, she grew up believing that making a profession of faith was important, that being baptized was important, and she wanted very much for her daddy to do that, and he had not done that. So when she was in the seventh grade, she started saving a little bit of her allowance till she bought him a little New Testament. And she wrote inside the leaf there what she had been taught, God loves you and I love you, Edwina. His name was Edward. She was named for him, Edwina. Edwina, God loves you and so do I. He never acknowledged the testament at all to her. Well, Edwina grew up, was married, moved away from the hometown. And then one night when she was 25, she got a call that her father had died very suddenly. He was only 47. And so she and her family rushed down to be with her mother and other members of the family. And Edwina said, I still remember that when I walked into his bedroom, their bedroom, his work pants, his khakis were still draped over the chair the way he had always done it when she was growing up. And she said, I noticed that his left back pocket was bulging a little. I knew that's where he always carried his wallet. But the right back pocket was bulging also. And I reached in and it was that New Testament I'd given him 12 years before. It was curved where it formed around himself. He had obviously had it in his pocket day after day after day all these years. And Edwina writes, Yes, I felt good. I knew he knew the love of God. The part that bothered me was that he had read this little book for 12 years and never felt a need to discuss it with anybody else. That he had never felt it important to go to a Sunday school class where it was talked about, to a disciple Bible class, to a worship service, or even to mention it to his own wife and children or grandchildren. How much he had missed. How much he had missed. The truths contained in this book are sometimes very clear 
and other times much more difficult to understand. This experience of Caesarea Philippi is about who Jesus was and is, but even bigger. So what does that say about who God is? What does that say about who God is? Number two. It was not only necessary that he go to Jerusalem, but now we have a passive voice verb, and be killed. Dr. Edward Schweitzer says, There is no evidence at all to believe that first century Jews had ever thought about their Messiah dying, certainly not being killed, not being assassinated on a Roman cross. Here is a passive tense verb. He went to Jerusalem. He was killed. Passive voice. In my Sunday school class, right now we're dealing with the book of Acts. And today we dealt with Simon Peter's address on the day of Pentecost. When people were asking, what's going on here? We don't understand how you common, ordinary Galilean folks without much education can speak to us, each in his own language, when we come from all the known nations of the world. And Peter said, let me explain that to you. And he said, this Jesus, delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed. God offered him because God was determined that his love would be shown no matter what. Dr. Weatherhead said years ago at his famed church in London during the war, God's number one will would have been that the whole world would have embraced his son Jesus that all the people of the world would have started caring genuinely for each other, that all would have trusted the one true God, and all would have treated everyone else as one's brother and sister. But if that's not the way the world was going to treat him, love was going to be shown no matter what, even to death on a cross. This week, this text, of course, I've been working on it all week long, and I opened my Tulsa World one morning at breakfast, and here was a movie review written by Michael Smith. Michael Smith, writing for the Tulsa World, was writing about a new movie that's come out of France about perhaps France's most popular woman singer ever. She was a woman named Edith Piaf. Okay? Edith Piaf, I'm sorry, P-I-A-F, Edith Piaf. She was born in 1915. She died a long time ago, 1962. That means she was 47 when she died. But Edith's life got off to a really bad start. She was born in 1915 when World War I was raging across France. Uh, when she was three in 1918, her mother had had enough of all that suffering and death, and she just abandoned this little girl, left hoping maybe she could have a career as a singer, chasing one man after the other. So Edith's father did the best he could. He was a soldier. So he left this little three-year-old girl with his mother, who ran a brothel in Paris. So this little girl was raised by prostitutes. 
by women who worked at the brothel. And sometimes they did fairly well by her, and lots of other times they didn't do well by her at all. When finally the war was over, and Edith was seven and eight, she was singing on the street corners in Paris for the few coins that people would toss into a hat she had in front of her. By the time she was ten, though, a theater director saw this child, thin, painfully thin, but what a clear, sweet voice singing on the street, and he made her into a star in France. But her life had a lot of bad places. She was into alcohol. She was into drugs. She became a part of the French underground during World War II and did really valiant work, supposedly, but by the time she was 47, she was dead. Now, Michael Smith, in his review, wrote a couple of sentences that I underlined. Number one, he said, She seemed to be a woman of deep faith. Her friends said she prayed a lot, though most of her prayers never got a yes. And Michael also wrote, A few times in her life, she was offered unconditional love. But the next moment, it was always snatched away. A few times, she was offered unconditional love. Every time, it was snatched away. That's not the way God's love works. The Hebrew Scriptures use one word more than any other to describe the very nature of God. The word chesed. What a wonderful word. It's usually translated for us as steadfast love. Never failing love. Never failing love. Unconditionally offered to all who would receive it as a gift and never snatched away from those who would embrace it. Not ever. Number three, another passive voice verb, and be raised. Be killed and be raised. The resurrection, of course, shows that God's love was not destroyed on a Roman cross, not defeated on a Roman cross. Maybe it appeared so for hours until that Sunday morning when the stone was rolled away and the body had been raised by God. That Jesus was alive, his presence in the world, his presence coming again in the form of the Holy Spirit, his promise that at the end time he would come again. The resurrection, resurrection from the dead. A few weeks ago I told you a story that Mark Darrow had sent to me. Mark is an attorney here in Tulsa, but he's the son of a United Methodist minister. Uh, when I came to this state, Mark's father was a district superintendent, much loved and admired, uh, Dr. Dwight Dara. Uh, he is still living, though retired now. Uh, Mark is a good storyteller. Uh, he, he writes stories about people he knows and experiences that he's had. And I don't know how big his mailing list is, but I'm glad to be on it. I'll always look forward to reading stories Mark has written. And he had one in a recent, recent little newsletter he had sent out. But he and his wife... Uh, had come to know a couple who were 50 years older than they. This older couple in their 80s, the man 85 years old. And Mark says that uh, he and his wife were invited out to dinner. And he simply says, in one of Tulsa's exclusive private clubs. 
It doesn't say the name. But they were invited and they were excited about getting to go to eat in this really nice place. And he said, when we arrived, uh, notice that the man Hubert had to go around and help his wife out of the car. That she, who had been young and beautiful and vibrant, now had to use a walker. And so it was really slow going from the car all the way to the elevator in this building, downtown Tulsa. And he said, you've seen people with walkers. They slide along and then sort of thump down and slide and thump and slide and thump. Uh, finally, they got to the elevator and got upstairs. He said the food was wonderful. And the conversation with these two was really great. They have such sharp minds, he said. And it was fun to talk with them and listen to them and eat with them. And just as dessert was over, the man turned to Mark's wife and asked if she would like to dance. And she said yes. And so Mark said, I'm sitting there watching my wife dancing with a man more than 50 years older than she is. And his wife says to me, Hubert loves to dance. He's always loved to dance. And I just can't do that anymore. And Mark said, I was still watching the two of them when Edith, I mean, uh, Leah patted him on the hand and said to him, you know, only yesterday I was your age. Only yesterday I was your age. And now 50 years have rushed by so quickly. If resurrection is not important to you today, it will be tomorrow. It will be one day both for those whom you love most and finally, inevitably, for you. Number four. I tell you, if you're trying to seize life, take life, save life, you will lose it. And if you learn how to lose your life for my sake, you will save it. As long as we think life is about grabbing and taking seizing, we miss it. When we discover that life is about first receiving God's gift of love for us in Christ Jesus, and then it's about making that God who was and is in Christ the center of our lives and others the focus of our lives. In those moments when we really focus on the other, that's as good as it's supposed to get. What Jesus said, Sue Monk Kidd wrote uh, an autobiographical book uh, published last year uh, called First Light. And she's looked back over her own life and tried to remember those times when she learned big, big truths about what life really is. And one chapter is about uh, going fishing when she was eight years old. She heard family members talking about a fishing trip, and she said rather shyly, I'd like to do that. And her granddaddy said, really? You think you'd like to fish? Yes, she thought so. And so he said, well, let's you and me set a date. Now, she said, I knew my granddad was a really busy man. He was a judge, she said. And I just knew judges must be very busy. But he told me the afternoon he was going to take me fishing. And surely enough, he came roaring up into the driveway, jumped out, put his big straw hat on and said, Susie, let's go. And we got down to the pond and he fixed our poles, lines, hooks, sinkers, corks, and baited mine and tossed it out into the pond and told me just how to hold my pole. I sat there and sat there and sat there 
until finally the tip of my pole was dipping in the water. And he quietly but firmly said, Susie, you're not going to catch a fish with the tip of your pole in the water. You've got to hold up your pole. And so she said, I was holding my pole. Finally got tired. She said, I just sort of leaning against his arm. Sun seemed to be going down farther and farther. And I finally said, Granddad, are you sure there are any fish in this pond? And he said, Oh, yeah, there are fish in this pond. Sometimes they're a little shy about biting. But you keep your eye on that cork. Sometimes, just as the sun goes down, one of them gets hungry. And when that cork goes under, you've got to be ready. And so she said, I sat there with him and sat there and sat there and it seemed almost dark to me when my cork went it went and I pulled and the biggest fish I'd ever seen in my life was suddenly in our laps and granddad was laughing he took that fish off the hook for me and said it's time for you and me to go home and we went home then she said you know that was more than 50 years ago I still remember it. But it was a special afternoon. I bet it was special to him too, she said. Because for a couple of hours, a busy judge had nothing more important than to focus on a child, a grandchild. And when I learned to do that, she said, when I do it really well, life's as wonderful as we've been promised it would be.